Hey everyone, welcome back to the Factory Podcast. I know this is kind of our our second unofficial episode. I know last week we did the preface. I was going to go ahead and do the introduction today. I know I said online that today would be the, you know the big day that we would start um, the official diary portion, but um, you know life kind of <laughs> life kind of got in the way. You know how that goes. So. Um, Anyways, happy Labor Day. Hope y'all are having a great day, rested. I know here it's raining. There's not a lot going on here. I tried to go to some Labor Day sales yesterday and nothing, nothing. I think it's all a scam. I didn't see any great sales. I said online there were, but there weren't any. (laughs) But anyways, before we get started, um, I did want to announce just in case anyone lives in the Charlotte area the Charlotte, North Carolina area, on September 10th, which is next Saturday, there's actually going to be an opening at the Beckler Museum of Art in downtown, and it's going to be um, an exhibit of Andy Warhol, Keith Haring, and Jean-Michel Basquiat. So I'm really looking forward to that. So just in case you're in the area, um, that's going on. So um, what we're going to do then is we'll go ahead and we'll get started on the introduction um, you know, it really does kind of put the diary into context. It gives introduction t- into Pat and Andy's relationship. You know, Pat Hackett, the editor of the book, since he re- called her every day and recited everything to her, it kind of explains how it all kind of got started and, um, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, this episode probably will be a little longer than normal. I know once we actually get into the diaries, which will be the next episode, some of them, you know, if you've read the book, you'll realize it's only sometimes just a small paragraph or a couple sentences. So it'll probably be shorter episodes, but maybe more frequent. So, um, Anyways, if you do have any questions or comments, you know, you can certainly reach out to us at the factory podcast mailbox at gmail.com, or you can also follow us on Instagram and it's the underscore factory underscore podcast where we post pictures, um, pertaining to the Andy Warhol diaries and then maybe anything other than Andy related (laughs) photos as well. So, uh, we will go ahead and get started. So, introduction. I met Andy Warhol in the autumn of 1968, eight years after he painted his first pop art canvases and just three months after he was shot and nearly killed by a woman who had appeared for a moment in one of his underground movies. During the previous spring, the art-making, filmmaking, hanging-out setup, known to 60s legends as The Factory, had moved from its original location, a silver loft on East 47th Street, to a white and mirrored loft that took up the whole sixth floor of 33 Union Square West. Andy loved Union Square, the trees in the park and the loft with its view of the stately Con Edison Tower, its clock face shining like a neighborhood moon, giving the time of day and night, always considered an unofficial boundary between uptown and downtown. Union Square was near the bargain shopping area on 14th Street. To the south, the west, and east villages in Soho were all within easy walking distance. And of course, a block away on Park Avenue South was Max's Kansas City, which was the breeding ground for so many of the characters that wound up in the factory movies. 
Every night, celebrities of the art, fashion, music, and underground filmmaking crowds jam themselves into favorite corners of the back room at Max's and monitored each other's clothes, makeup, wit, and love interests while they received exchange celebrities from out of town, directors and producers from Europe or Hollywood, and waited to be taken away from all of this, which was New York notoriety, and put into all of this global fame. Andy's art hung on the wall. I'm an underground graduate at Barnard at the time and going down to the factory to see if Andy Warhol needed a part-time typist. It seemed like a good way to inject some glamour into my college years. I introduced myself to Andy, explaining I was going to school, and he suggested I work for him just whenever I could. So I began going down to the factory a few days a week after classes. He and I shared a 4 by 10 office piled as in time I discovered all his offices, whatever their dimensions, would be piled with lots and lots of clutter. He would read the newspapers and drink carrot juice from Brownies, which was a local health food store around the corner on 16th Street. While I transcribed tapes, he handed me a phone conversations he'd had while he was in bed recuperating. First in the hospital and then at home, and in the narrow four-story Victorian home on Lexington and 89th, that he lived in with his mother. Andy had come to New York from Pittsburgh in 1949, and at first he shared apartments with other people. Eventually he could afford a place of his own, then his mother suddenly arrived in town and moved in with them, her youngest son saying she wanted to look after him. She may have decided, or just as likely he may have told her, that he was working so hard he had no time to find a wife to take care of him, because when I met Julia Warholia one afternoon in 1969, she said hello, thought for a second, and then concluded, you'd be nice for my Andy, but he's just too busy. (laughs) Andy's mother lived with him in the house on 89th Street and Lexington Avenue until 1971. By then, apparently suffering from from being senile, (laughs) she requested constant care, and Andy sent her back to Pittsburgh to the care of his brothers, John and Paul. After suffering a stroke, she died in a nursing home there in 1972. But to even his closest friends who'd often ask him, how's your mother? Andy would continue to say for years after her death, oh, she's fine. In my first weeks at the factory... Friends Andy hadn't seen since before the shooting, superstars like Viva and Ondine and Nico or Lou Reed or the other members of the Velvet Underground would drop by the Union Square loft to ask him how he was feeling. He'd usually just assure them, oh good, or occasionally he'd joke with my hands. Bridget Berlin, a.k.a. Bridget Polk, the eldest daughter of longtime Hearst Corporation chairman Richard E. Berlin, had starred in Andy's movie Chelsea Girls. And now she would come by to make pocket money by letting Andy tape record her talking about, say, whatever happened in the back room at Max's the night before, or about who she talked to on the phone that morning from the tiny room at the nearby George Washington Hotel. When she was done, he'd take out his checkbook and reward her for the performance with $25, which was sometimes negotiated up to 50 for each of these post-shooting reunions with his friends, something in Andy's expression said he was amazed that he was still alive to see them. At one point in the hospital, just before they succeeded in reviving him, the doctors had thought he was gone, and Andy, in a state of semi-consciousness, had heard them say words to that effect. From June 1968 on, he considered himself a man who was officially back from the dead. 
Andy and I didn't talk much at first. For weeks, I just transcribed, and he just sat there, a few feet away from my manual typewriter, reading and taking phone calls. Most of the time, his face was impassive. There was definitely a weird feeling about him. For one thing, he moved in a strange way. Eventually, I realized that this was because his chest was still wrapped in surgical tape. Blood from the wounds that were still healing sometimes seeped through onto his shirt. But when Andy laughed, the weirdness disappeared and his whole face changed. Then he was appealing to me. Andy was polite and humble. He rarely told anyone to do things. He just asked them in a hopeful tone. Do you think you could? Question mark. He treated everyone with respect. He never talked down to anyone, and he made everyone feel important, soliciting their opinions and probing with questions about their own lives. He expected everyone who worked for him to do their job, but he was nonetheless grateful when they did. He knew that any degree of conscientiousness was hard to find, even when you paid for it. And he was especially grateful for even the smallest thing you could do for him. I never heard anyone say thank you more than Andy. And from his tone, you always felt he meant it. Thank you were the last words he'd ever said to me. Andy had three ways of dealing with employee incompetence, depending on his mood. Sometimes he'd watch them for minutes at a time and then raising his eyebrows and closing his eyes philosophically, turning away without saying a word. Sometimes he'd rant and roll for half... Sometimes he'd rant and rail for half an hour at the offender, though nobody would ever get fired. And sometimes he'd suddenly break into impromptu imitation of the person. Never a literal one, but rather his interpretation of their vision of themselves. And it was always very funny. The worst things Andy could think about someone was that he was the kind of person who thinks he's better than you. Or simply, he thinks he's an intellectual (laughs) Andy knew that a good idea would come from anywhere. His head wasn't turned by credentials. What what was he impressed with then? Fame, old, new, or faded. Beauty, classical talent, innovative talent. Anyone who did anything first. A certain kind of outrageous nerve. Good talkers, money, especially big, old American brand name money. Contrary to what readers of social columns might guess after seeing Andy's name in print so many times over so many years, at so many events with European royalty, foreign titles didn't impress him. He always got them completely wrong, or at the very least, badly mispronounced them. He never took his success for granted. He was thrilled to have it. His uniform humility and courtesy were my two favorite things about him. As much as he changed and evolved over all the years, I knew him, and these qualities never diminished. After a few years of volunteer typing, I had my midterm exams to study for, so I stopped going downtown. I assumed that Andy probably wouldn't even notice I wasn't around. I hadn't figured out yet that his passive expression didn't mean he wasn't noticing even the smallest details. So I was shocked when someone knocked on the door of my dorm room to say I had a call from Andy. I couldn't believe he would even remember what school I went to, let alone which dorm I lived in. Where was I, he wanted to know, and to make sure I was coming back, he sweetened the pot by offering to pay my subway fees to and from work. A ride back then was 20 cents. The major activity at the factory in the years 1968 to 72 was making feature-length 16-millimeter movies. 
they would be blown up to 35 millimeter for commercial release, with the offbeat people who hung around Maxis or came by the factory to be discovered. During the summer of 68, when Andy was home in bed recovering from his gunshot wounds, Paul Morrissey, a Fordham graduate who once worked for an insurance company and who up until the shooting had assisted on Andy's factory movies, filmed a movie of his own, Flesh. It starred the handsome receptionist-slash-bouncer at the factory, Joe D'Alessandro, an irresistible male hustler trying to raise money for his girlfriend's abortion. And in the fall of 68, Flesh became a long commercial run at the Garrick Theater on Bleecker Street. Assisting Paul on Flesh was Jed Johnson, who had begun working at the factory in the spring, shortly after he and his twin brother Jay arrived in town from Sacramento. Jed's first duties at the factory were stripping the paint from the wooden frames of the windows that blocked out on, window, on Union Square Park and building shelves in the back of the loft for film cam storage. In his spare time, he taught himself how to edit film on the factor, factory's moviola by playing with reels of San Diego surf and lonesome cowboys, both of which been filmed by Andy on a factory filmmaking field trip to Arizona and California just before he had been shot. Once the factory moved to Union Square, Billy Name, the photographer who had been responsible for the silver look of the 47th Street factory and for his amphetamine-centered social life, began living in the small dark room he set up at the back of the loft. Over the course of a few months in 68 and the beginning of 69, he retreated from the daytime activities of the factory and began emerging from his dark room only at night and only after everyone had gone. Empty takeout food containers in the trash the next day were the only indications he was alive and eating. After over a year of his hermit nocturnal life, when Jed arrived as usual one morning to open up the loft, he found the dark room wide open. Billy had gone. Gerard, Gerard Malanga, one of Andy's first painting assistants in the 60s, and a performer in some of the early movies, like Vinyl and Kiss, shared one of the two large desks at the front of the loft with Fred Hughes, who was just evolving into a position as a manager of Andy's art career. Fred had entered the world of art through working for the DeMille family, art patrons and philanthropists from his hometown of Houston. Fred made a big impression on Andy in two major ways. First, in the short term, Fred had introduced him to his rich, generous family, and second, in the long term, he had a rare understanding of and respect for Andy's art and a flair for how, when, and where to present it. From his half of the desk, Gerard answered the phones while he wrote poetry, and in 1969, when Andy decided to start a magazine called Interview, Gerard was for a short while its editor before he left New York for Europe. The other desk belonged to Paul, who sat with color blow-ups of some of the superstars behind him, including two girls of the year, Viva and International Velvet, who was Susan Bottomley. Paul went on to make Trash in 1970 and Heat in 1971. Women in Revolt and L'Amour made during the same period were a collaborative factory effort with Andy, Paul, Fred, and Jed, all involved in the casting, shooting, and editing. Then in 1974, Paul went to Italy to direct two movies for Carlo Ponti's production company, 
which were ultimately presented by Andy. Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, Andy Warhol's Dracula. Jed and I went to Italy to work on them, and after they were finished, Paul stayed on in Europe, in effect ending his role as a major influence at the factory. Fred by now was setting up all the office deals and helping Andy make his business decisions. Vincent Fremont, who had driven cross-country to New York from San Diego and begun working at the factory in the autumn of 69, was now general office manager. In the summer of 74, the factory moved from 33 Union Square West to the third floor of 860 Broadway, just half a block away. Around this time, Andy instructed the receptionist to stop answering the phone with factory. Factory had become too corny, he said, and the place became simply the office. Bob Coliacello, who had graduated from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and had come to the factory by way of writing a review of trash for the Village Voice, was working by this time mainly for the magazine, now with a slight title change called Andy Warhol's Interview doing articles and writing his column, Out, which chronicled his own around-the-clock social life and dropped a heavy load of names every month. In 1974, Bob Colicello, by then he dropped the I in his name, officially became the magazine's executive editor, shaping its image into a politically conservative and sexually androgynous one. It wasn't a magazine with a family, re- with a family readership, One survey in the late 70s concluded that the average interview reader had something like .001 children. Its editorial and advertising policies were elitist to the point of being dedicated, as Bob himself once explained laughing, to the restoration of the world's most glamorous and most forgotten dictatorships and monarchies. It was a goal, people pointed out, that seemed with Bob with Bob's Brooklyn accent, but this didn't stop him from going on to specify exactly which monikers he missed and why. When Andy decided to start the magazine in 1969, the idea was that it would be oriented towards the movies. He wanted stars to just talk, their own words unedited, and whenever possible, to be interviewed by other stars. This was something new in magazine publishing, and since Andy's business philosophy was always to start things on a small budget and build slowly, do the early financing yourself so that later when the business is worth more, you're not a backer, own more of it. The magazine was published on a very low budget. To give an idea of just how low the budget was, in the first episode, an interviewee had referred to a well-known movie critic who had just appeared in a Hollywood movie about a transsexual as a drag queen. It was only after the issue was off the presses that a lawyer advised that drag queen was libelous, but just plain but was just plain queen would be fine. So Andy, Paul, Fred, Jed, and Gerard and I, and plus whoever else happened to walk in the door that day, spent about six hours sitting in the front of the loft going through bundle after bundle of interview magazine and crossing out the word drag with black felt-tip markers while Paul complained, This is like doing penance. I'll never call him a drag queen again. I will never call him a drag queen again. At 33 Union Square West, the magazine offices had, had been two rooms on the 10th floor, four floors away from the factory, but after the move to 860 Broadway, they were on the same floor as Andy's office and painting area, separated by only a wall. Andy seemed to regard the employees of Interview as his stepchildren, different from the people who worked directly for him, who were family. 
One visitor, noticing the psychological distance from Andy between his personal employees and the staff of his magazine, observed only half-jokingly, I get the feeling that if the people who work for interview were asked to name the one celebrity in the world they most like to meet, they'd all say Andy Warhol. (laughs) There were exceptions. Crossovers who worked at interview but were also Andy's personal friends who went out with them socially. People like Bob Colicella and Catherine Guinness, a member of the Anglo-Irish brewery family. But generally to Andy, the interview people were part of his business life, but not his emotional life. He referred to them as them, and to us as us. While Andy's social life in the late 1960s and early 70s was steered mainly by Fred, by 1975, Bob Colicello was also initiating many social events and some business deals. All deals, however, though, had to be cleared with Fred. From the growing circle of rich people he was becoming friendly with, Bob delivered a lot of large portrait commissions, and he also got Andy publishing contracts. On the first book, The Philosophy of Andy Warhol, From A to B and Back Again, I did eight separate interviews with Andy on the basis of I wrote chapters 1 through 8 and 10, then using material from conversations Andy had taped between himself and Bob Colicello and Bridget Berlin, I wrote the introductory chapter in chapters 9, 11, 12, 13, and 14. It was the first major project Andy and I had worked on together, and after the book was published in 1975, he asked me to co-author the second book with him, his memoirs of the 60s, which we decided to call Popism. From 1975 on, the magazine was a great source of activity for Andy. That was the year he bought out newspaper manufacturer, art collector Peter Brandt to become full owner and publisher, with Fred assuming the title of president. Until this point, Andy had remained pretty much aloof from the day-to-day operation of the magazine, but now suddenly he was running in to look at art director Mark Baylett's layouts or scheduling lunches in the conference room to pitch interview to prospective advertisers. It was the magazine, more than anything else, that kept Andy from passing into 60s history. Meeting creative new people, especially young kids, was always important to him. He thrived on it, but he knew that people only come to you if they think you have something to offer them. In the mid-60s, he was cranking out his early cheap underground films at the rate practically of one a week. It was the possibility of getting into Annie's movies that drew people to the factory. By the 1970s, however, with the price making commercially exhibitable movies becoming prohibited, Andy had few roles to offer people and not even the certainty that the movie being discussed would actually even get made. Interview Magazine more than filled the void. Circulation had been growing every year. By 1976, Interview had a cachet of sophisticated, self-mocking silliness that made celebrities actually want to be in it. Often Andy, usually with someone on the staff, did the cover interview himself. Every issue had to be stocked with people, and this was the new supply of fresh faces now coming by the office constantly. We'll put you in the magazine, replaced with we'll put you in the movie, as Andy's most frequent promise. The terms Innerman, View Girl, Upfront, and First Impression were all interview page headings for pictures of young, never-before-seen-in-print male and female beauties. Interview became the most glamorous magazine around. I once heard Bob on the phone reassuring a society matron, 
Don't worry about the photograph. We touch, we retouch anyone over the age of 20. 1976 was also the year that Andy Warhol's Bad was shot in New York in 35mm and with a union crew. The cast was a combination of our own studio stars, people like Geraldine Smith from Flesh and Sorinda Fox from around the corner on East 17th Street, and Hollywood professionals like Carol Baker and Perry King. Jed directed Bad. I had co-written this screenplay, and it was well-received. Vincent Camby's review in the New York Times said it was more aware of what's up with any Warhol film to date. Despite the movie's critical success, after making Bad, Jed never went back to work at the factory, the office again. He began buying and selling antiques and then started his own decorating business, although he continued to live on the fourth floor of the federal-style townhome on East 66th Street that he had found for Andy and that Andy had moved into 1974. Fred, meanwhile, had moved from his apartment on East 16th Street into the house on Lexington that Andy had just vacated. For most of the 70s and continuing continuing right up until Andy's death, finding people to commission him to do portraits was a major activity since it brought in a big share of his annual income. No matter what other canvases he was working on for museums and gallery shows, there are always portraits in the works in some corner on the loft. Anyone, gallery dealers, friends, or employees, who bought, who brought in a commission got a commission. As artist Ronnie Catrone, a dancer with the exploding plastic inevitable in the 60s, and Andy's painting assistant in the 70s once put it, pop art was over and there was a bunch of new movements. Meanwhile, he had an office to keep running and a magazine that he felt needed subsidizing from him. After doing his pop celebrity portraits in the 60s, the Marilyns, the Liz's, Elvis's, Marlins, etc., it was a natural evolution to do portraits in private, or at least non-show business, people therefore making them equal, in some sense, to the legends. And actually, even in the 60s, on a much smaller scale, Andy had done some commission portraits of non-star subjects like art collector Ethel Skull, gallery owner Holly Solomon, and Happy Rockefeller. Fred Hughes adds, The art establishment found the idea of Andy doing commission portraits very unconventional. Artists weren't supposed to be doing this kind of thing, but Andy was always unconventional, and the fact is he liked doing them. After we got the first commissions, he said to me, Okay, go get some more. Andy's procedure for making a portrait was elaborate. It began with the subject posing while he took approximately 60 Polaroid photos. He used Polaroid's big shot camera exclusively, and after that, the model was discontinued. He made a special arrangement with the company to buy all the unused stock they had. Then, from those 60 shots, he would choose four and give them to a screen printer. He worked exclusively with one printer at a time. Before 1977, he'll silkscreener was Alec Heinrichy. After that, it was Rupert Smith. To make into positive images on 8x10 acetates, where those would come back, he would choose one image, decide where to crop it, and doctor it cosmetically in order to make the subject appear as attractive as possible. He would elongate necks, trim noses, enlarge lips, clear up complexions as he saw fit. In short, he would do unto others as he would wish them do unto him. Then he would have them cropped, doctored image on the 8x10 blow-up to a 40 40x40 40 acetate, and from the screen printer would make a silk screen. 
to always be prepared for the steady stream of portraits, Andy had his assistants pre-paint rolls of canvas and one or two background shades, flesh tone for men's portraits and a different pink or flesh tone for women's. Using a carbon transfer under tracing paper, he traced the image from the 40 by 40 acetate onto the flesh-toned canvas and then paint in the colored areas like hair, eyes, lips on women, and ties and jackets on men. When the silk screen was ready, the detailed image would be lined with the pre-painted colored areas and the details of the photograph would be screened onto the canvas. It was the slight variations in the alignment of the image with the painted colors underneath that gave Warhol portraits their characteristic shifting look. The portraits, as a rule, cost approximately $25,000 for the first canvas and $5,000 for each, for each additional one. Keeping to his beloved workday rut was so important to Andy that he veered from it only when he was forced to. After doing the diary with me on the phone, he'd make her take a few more phone calls, shower, get dressed, take his cherished dachshunds, Archie and Amos, into the elevator with him, and go from the third floor of his house, where his bedroom was, to the basement kitchen, where he'd have breakfast with his two Filipino housekeepers, sisters Nina and Aurora. Then he'd tuck some copies of Interview under his arm and go out shopping for a few hours, usually along Madison Avenue, then in the auction houses, the jewelry district around 47th Street, and the vintage antique shops. He'd pass out the magazine to shopkeepers in the hope that they would decide to advertise, and to fans who recognized him in the street and stopped him, he, it felt good having something to give to them. He'd get to the office between 1 and 3, depending on whether there was a business advertising lunch or not. Upon arrival, he'd reach into his pocket or his boot for some cash and send one of the kids out to brownies down the block for snacks. Then while he was drinking his carrot juice or tea, he'd check the appointment books for that afternoon and night's events return phone calls, and take some of the calls that came in as he was standing there. He would also open the stacks of mail he got every day, deciding just which letters, invitations, gifts, and magazines to drop into a time capsule, meaning one of the hundreds of 10 by 18 by 14 brown cardboard boxes, which would be sealed, dated, put into storage, and instantly replaced with an identical empty box, less than 1% of all of the items that he was consistently being sent or given did he keep for himself or give away. All of the rest were, were for the box, things that he considered interesting, which to Andy, who was interested in everything, meant he kept literally everything. A written communication from Andy was a rarity. You'd often see him holding a pen and his hand would be moving, but it was almost always just to sign his name be it as an autograph or on the work of art or at the bottom of a contract. He did scribble phone numbers on scraps of paper, but they were never organized into an address book. And when he wrote a note, it was rarely more than a phrase, something like, Pat used this, attached to a newspaper clipping that he thought would be helpful for a project we were working on. An exception was when someone would dictate words they wanted him to write on a gift card, for example, and then he'd be happy to keep writing, but only until the dictation stopped. He'd stay in the main reception area for an hour or two, talking to people around the office about their love lives, their diets, where they'd gone the night before. Then he'd move to the sunny window ledge by the phones and read the day's newspaper, leaf through magazines, 
take a few more random calls, talk a little business with Fred and Vincent. Eventually, he'd go to the working area in the back part of the loft near the freight elevator, and there he would paint, draw, cut, move images around, etc. till the end of the day when he would sit down with Vincent and pay bills and talk on the phone to friends, locking in the night's itinerary. Between 6 and 7, once the rush hour traffic was over, he'd walk over to Park Avenue and get a cab uptown. He'd spend a few minutes at home doing what he called gluing, which was washing his face, adjusting the silver hair that was his trademark, and maybe, just maybe, changing his clothes, but only if that was an especially heavy evening. Then he'd check to make sure there was film in his instant camera. From the mid-60s to the mid-70s, Andy was notorious for endlessly tape recording his friends, but by the end of the 70s, he got bored with random taping and usually would just record people for a specific reason. That is, if he felt he could use what they said or a dialogue in a play or movie script. Then he'd leave for the night, sometimes to multiple dinners and parties, sometimes just to an early movie and dinner. But no matter how late he stayed out, he was always ready for the diary early again the next morning. For a few years before 1976, I had kept a journal and very sketchy factory log for Andy. I make a list of the business visitors who had come to the office during the day and then another list of the main events of the previous night. Even if I'd been to some or all of them myself, I'd have different people give me their versions of the same dinner party or art opening. The point was simply to determine what had actually happened, who was there, and how much it had cost Andy in cash expenses, not to get Andy's personal view of it. Very often, i just ask him what his expenses had been and leave his contributions to the log at that. In 1976, after the filming of Bad, I told Andy that I didn't want to work at the office anymore, but that I would still write popism with him. He asked if I would continue to keep the log and itemize his personal expenses. It'll only take you five minutes a day, he said, and I told him I didn't want to have to continue calling everyone at the office every day to find out what had happened the day before, and if I was going to do that, I might as well be working there. So we agreed that from that time on, the daily accounts would come from Andy himself. At that point, the log became Andy's own personal narrative. In the fall of 1976, Andy and I established a weekday morning routine of talking to each other on the phone still for the purpose of getting down on record everything he'd done in every place he had gone the day and night before and logging the cash business expense he had incurred in the process. This account of daily activities came to have the largest function of letting Andy examine life. In a word, it turned into a diary, but whatever its broader objective, its narrow one to satisfy tax auditors was always on Andy's mind. The record he kept included even the 10-cent calls he made from the street payphones, It wasn't that he was being overly cautious. The IRS had subjected his business to his first major audit in 1972 and continued the scrutiny every year right up until his death. Andy was convinced these audits were triggered by someone in the Nixon administration because of the campaign poster he'd done for George McGovern in 1972 featured a green-faced Richard Nixon and the words, Vote McGovern. Philosophically, Philosophically, <laughs> you can tell I've been reading a long time. Philosophically, Andy was a liberal Democrat, although he never voted because he said he didn't want to get called up for jury duty. He did, however, offer his employees bribes of election days off if they gave their word they'd vote Democratic. I'd call Andy around 9 a.m., never later than 
Sometimes I'd be waking him up. Sometimes he'd say he'd been awake for hours. If I happened to oversleep, he'd call me and say something like, Good morning, Miss Diary. What's wrong with you? Or, Sweetheart, you're fired. The calls were always conversations. We'd warm up a while just chatting. He was always curious about everything. He'd ask a million questions. What are you having for breakfast? Do you have Channel 7 on? How can I clean my can opener? Should I do it with a toothbrush? Then he'd give me his cash expenses and tell me all about his day and night before. Nothing was too insignificant for him to tell the diary. These sessions, which he referred to as my five minutes a day job, would actually take anywhere from one to two hours. Every other week or so, I'd go over to the office with the typed pages of each day's entry, and I'd staple to the back of each, every page all the loose cab and restaurant receipts he left for me in the interim, receipts that corresponded to the amounts he'd already told me over the phone. The pages were then stored in letter boxes from the stationery store. The diary was done every morning, Monday through Friday, but never on the weekends, even if Andy and I happened to talk on the phone or see each other. The diary would always wait until Monday morning when we do a triple session and he'd recount Friday, Saturday, and Sunday's activities. I would make extensive notes on a legal pad as we talked, and right after we hung up, while Andy's indignations were fresh on my mind, I'd sit at the typewriter and get it all down on paper. When Andy was out of town, he'd either call me from where he was or scrawl notes, usually on hotel stationery, and he'd read them to me over the phone when he got back, often having to stop to decipher them. And on these occasions, the going was slower, so I usually had time to type them as he read. Occasionally, he'd talk into a tape recorder and give me the cassette when he got back. When I went away, the arrangements would vary. Sometimes I would call him periodically from where I was, and he would read me the notes he'd kept. Whatever the procedure, no day was left unaccounted for. The diary calls weren't necessarily the only times Andy and I would talk to each other during the day. If we were working on a project together, writing popism, for example, we might speak a few times during the day and evening. And business aside, we were friends. The kind of friends who would call each other whenever we felt like it, when something funny happened or when we were mad about something. Actually, arguing and laughing are the two things I remember doing the most with Andy. Many times during these non-diary calls and occasionally in person, Andy would add to or correct something he told me during the regular call and would tell me to put it in the diary. Andy changed so much over the years that some who knew him in the 60s and early 70s may very well wonder why certain aspects of his personality that they had experienced and that were widely written about didn't show up more in the diary, particularly a cruel, maddening way he had of provoking people to near hysteria with comments calculated to do just that. The answer is in two parts. First and most obvious, this is a diary, one man's perspective, and the diary form itself preludes dramatic confrontations between two or more people. Second, Andy gradually outgrew the impulse to make trouble. He'd had a late adolescence. In his 20s, he worked very hard at his commercial art career. He didn't take much time out to have fun, really, until he was in his 30s. So he terrorized people that way. For instance, the most popular girl in high school could, creating cliques and setting up rivalries just for entertainment value of watching people fight for his attention. But toward the end of the 70s, he had begun to mellow. Very rarely would he deliberately provoke someone. In fact, he tried to pacify more than to incite. And his personal and emotional problems he had himself that he went through the years covered by the diaries left him looking for comfort, not drama, in his friendships. 
By the last year of his life, he was kinder and easier to be around than any time since I'd met him. A few idiosyncrasies to bring to the reader's attention, Andy's conversations were full of superficial, contradictory remarks. He'd describe someone as a cute little creep, or he'd say, it was so much fun I had to leave. And naturally, as in any diary, his opinions about any particular person or thing may fluctuate greatly over time. He would exaggerate quantities. He would describe a five foot two person as two foot, or a man who weighed 250 pounds as 400. 18 was a favorite number. If there were multiple events on his evening schedule, he'd say he had 18 parties to go to. He used the term fairy and dyke loosely, as when describing even slightly effeminate men and loud-speaking women. Boyfriend and girlfriend, he used just as freely. When Andy worked long hours as a freelance commercial artist in the 50s, doing drawings at home at night and dragging his portfolio around Manhattan during the day, he met hundreds of people in advertising and publishing and retail sales. And after he left commercial art and became a pop painter, he became a running joke that he referred to every one of them as the person who gave me my first job. That was just his way of describing anyone from that period in his life. It was often written about Andy that he used the royal we. To an extent, that was true. It was like our movies, our magazine, our party, our friends. But that only applied to his post-factory days. Anyone that knew him before rented the first factory was simply a friend of mine. And anything related to his art, of course, was always described in the first person singular. My painting, my show, my work. Going broke was Andy's biggest fear that and getting cancer. A headache or a freckle was always a possible brain or skin cancer. Ironically, it's apparent it's apparent now in retrospect that when he was really worried about health problem, he scarcely mentioned it. Episodes like a lump in his neck in the June of 1977, which doctors finally pronounced benign, and the gallbladder problem in February of 1987, which eventually led to his death. So that the diary could be published in one large volume, I've distilled its original length of 20,000 pages down to what I feel is the best material and the most representative of Andy. This naturally entailed cutting whole days, occasionally even entire weeks, but most often just parts of days. On a day when Andy went to five parties, I may have included only a single one. I applied the same editing principle to names to give the diary a narrative flow and to keep it from reading like social columns where the reader is deluged with his list of proper names that often have little meaning to him. I've cut many names. If Andy mentioned, say, ten people, I might have chosen to include only the three he had conversations with or spoke of in the most detail. Such omissions are not noted in the text since the effect would only serve to distract and slow the reader down. The diary does not include a glossary because simplistic explanations of who people were in relation to Andy would go against, if not completely betray, the sensibility of what he was about and the unstructured world he generated around him. Andy was not about putting people into categories. He was about letting them cross in and out of categories. The people in his 60s underground movies were called superstars, but what exactly did that mean? It could refer to the most beautiful model in New York or the delivery boy who brought her a pack of cigarettes during filming and wound up in front of the rolling cameras. To Andy, putting things in a format that made sense was enough of a compromise. 
He gets exasperated when I'd occasionally make him repeat or rephrase something I didn't understand. His first novel, published in 1968, actually had a literary element. Transcripts of conversations that he taped of his superstars and friends as they operated in the amphetamine and pansexual subculture of New York were transcribed by amateur typists who, guessing at words and phrases when they couldn't be certain, perpetrated technical and conceptual mistakes galore that Andy made sure were reproduced typo for typo as the public as the published text. Another concern was keeping the editorial explanations, which appear occasionally in brackets, to a minimum so that the flow of Andy's own voice with his peculiar locations could be preserved uninterrupted. I felt that, although exp- explanationary matter could have been provided in many in- editorial asides to occasionally make a reader's job a little easier, the benefit gained from these intrusions would be small in proportion to the jarring effect that they would have on Andy's personal tone and the needless effect they would have on the reader. The exact nature of some of the relationships between Andy and various characters can be grasped only after some effort. I believe having to work a little to understand things is part of the unique experience of diary reading, watching life unfold naturally with its occasional confusions. To keep these confusions to a minimum, however, the diary should be read in sequence. Finally, in editing the diary for publication, I've eliminated eliminated (laughs) the interpersonal dimension of Andy's and my discourse, his direct references to me or to things that would have meaning only to me, and the relatively few instances where I did leave impersonal references, I took the liberty of translating myself into the third person using my initials PH. My aim was to make it possible for the diary to be read in the same casual and intimate spirit in which Andy gave it to me every morning so that the reader would always be the you on the other end of the phone. Pat Hackett, New York, January of 1989. So this episode is much longer than the other episodes will be. Um, If anyone... (laughs) still listening to all of that um the very next episode we'll we'll start our very first diary entry which will be november 24th of 1976 so thank you so much i hope you all have a wonderful week